The preaching of the word this morning comes from the fifth chapter of the book of Exodus. Let's please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, and they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you may make them rest from their burdens. The same Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for him as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. O Holy Spirit, come now and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond in obedience and faith to your word. Come and show us yourself and lead us further up and further in to the good news of the gospel as we find it here in Exodus 5. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. 
I still remember this night in vivid detail. I was in the fourth grade, and it was Super Bowl Sunday, but I didn't care who was playing in the game because something much more important was happening this night. The publisher's clearinghouse was going to send the prize patrol to somebody's house that night and award them the jackpot, the sweepstakes. Several million dollars worth of, of money in a big old check to some lucky lottery winner. And in my fourth grade logic, it could be me, and so it might as well be me, and so it's going to be me. And so on this night, I was ready for the prize patrol. I swept the front porch. I practiced my surprise look. I was ready for the camera and, and the people and the confetti. But then something happened that I actually wasn't ready for. Halftime came. It was time for the prize patrol to show up at somebody's door, and our doorbell rang. And I don't know if I ran or flew or floated to the front door, but I, I, it flung open and time stood still. And there was my dad holding a big sign that said, Pies Patrol. And he was holding two apple pies <laughs> out to me. And that night, it wasn't the first time and it wasn't the last time, but it was a memorable time that I experienced that gap between expectations and reality. You know that gap between how you think something's going to go and then how it actually turns out. Have you ever experienced that gap before? Do you know what it's like to live either for a moment or for a long amount of time in the gap between expectation and reality? Do you know what it's like to arrive at something that you were looking forward to and realize that it's just not at all like what you had in mind? That night in the fourth grade, as I stood there in this gap between expectation and reality, it was funny, it was a joke, my dad had a good sense of humor, but as we all know, sometimes it's no joke. Sometimes this gap between expectation and reality can crush you. Sometimes it's confusing, disheartening, disappointing, and discouraging. We can get disillusioned and cynical or bitter and angry or resigned and callous. Because how you thought it was going to be is just not like how it's actually turned out to be. Maybe it's your job situation, your marriage, your retirement, your singleness, your walk with the Lord. Maybe in any of those categories or many more, you know what it's like for the wheels to fall off, seemingly out of nowhere, and suddenly everything's come unglued and you're left saying, God, this is not what I thought it was going to look like. This is not what I expecting. I thought it would be different. The gap between expectations and reality is a common feature of life in this fallen world, of life on this side of heaven. And you know, a lot of times, like God in his grace and mercy makes the gap a good thing. Sometimes he gives us so much more than we were expecting or hoping for. Sometimes the gap between expectation and reality turns out to be amazing. But other times it's not amazing. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it breaks your heart, and it's really, really hard. This gap between expectation and reality is where we find the people of Israel this morning in our passage in Exodus 5. It's where we find Moses, the man that's, that God has called to deliver them out of slavery. They're in this gap between how they thought God's rescue was going to play out and then how it's actually playing out. They thought it was going to look and feel like this, but it turns out to not be at all like what they were expecting. 
Just imagine being a part of the crowd at the end of chapter 4, where we were last week. Do you remember how chapter 4 ends? It's, 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 it's right before our passage this morning. And here's the scene. Moses and Aaron show up to the people of Israel, and they announce to them that God's on the move. God is coming. He's on the way to rescue them. He's coming for them. And they perform these miracles in front of all of the people. And here's what happens. This is the last verse in chapter 4. And the people believed. And when the people heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Can you imagine the elation, the stirred hopes, the full hearts, the energy, the relief, the celebration? This is a mountaintop experience. God's coming. It's going to change. It's going to get better. And then it doesn't get better. It gets worse. Chapter 4 ends with what had to feel like a mountaintop experience for Moses, but by the end of chapter 5 that we just read, he's in a dark valley far from that mountaintop. Chapter 4 ends with Moses telling Israel that God has not forsaken them. And chapter 5 ends with Moses asking God why he has forsaken them. Chapter 4 ends with Moses in worship. Chapter 5 ends with Moses in crisis. This episode in Israel's life and in Moses' life is so relevant and instructive and helpful for us because following Jesus in a broken world and as broken people can go just like this. Following Jesus on this side of heaven in a world where things can fall apart means that we will know the harsh realities of living in the gap between expectation and reality. Following Jesus doesn't make you exempt from it. Sometimes it guarantees that you will experience it. The pain and the confusion, the hardship, the trial, the disappointment. Sometimes what we thought was God's plan A will come unglued and fall apart and it will leave us disoriented, discouraged, and confused. Sometimes just when we thought that we knew what God was up to and what he was doing in our life, suffering comes out of nowhere and the wheels fall off and life makes even less sense than it did before. So what does God want to teach us here this morning? Well, the way that we'll approach this passage this morning is I want to show you three lessons that we can learn from looking at Israel in the gap. Three lessons that we can learn and apply to our own walk with God in the, in the gaps that he gives to us. The gaps between expectation and reality where there is so often disappointment, pain, and confusion. So the first thing we see here is that the gap is not surprising. The gap is not surprising. That is, it's not uncommon. It's not unexpected. Instead, what we see is that it's a common feature that God's people experience regularly in this world as we follow Jesus in a broken world where things can fall apart. Again, chapter 4 ends on a mountaintop. Israel and Moses himself, they've got to be thinking, okay, everything's going to get better now. God is on the move. He's coming after us. Surely the pain and hardship and the trials of the last 400 years are at an end. Surely God the arrival of God at work for our redemption means that things are going to improve and change. And things do change, but for the worse. The wheels fall off. 
This chapter details this downward, painful spiral from slavery that was bad enough to slavery that's now unbearable. Making bricks out of the mud in hot Egyptian sun all day long and every day with no break, that was bad enough, and that's what they knew. But at least they had the proper equipment. At least they had the right resources. Now now Pharaoh makes them go and collect their own straw, and it's impossible, and they're getting beat for it. It's gone from bad to worse. This is not at all how we expected the rescue to play out. They expected the arrival of God for their redemption and their rescue to look different. This was a sudden downward turn that they did not see coming in their story. Think about it like this. Imagine if you had to plot the storyline of Israel's story on a graph, like on a sheet of paper, and it, would, and it would look something like a stock market, the stock market trajectory. Some highs, some lows, but going from, from, from backward to forward. How would you chart this chapter of their story, this part of the storyline? I bet it would look something like the stock market did in 2020. Or like the stock market did back in 2008 or the Great Depression. It was going along fine, maybe going up, and then suddenly, drastically, unexpectedly, way down. From chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, to the end of chapter 5. That's how this gap in expectation and reality would look if you had to put it on paper. It looks like a sudden downward turn in their storyline. But here's the thing. When we circle that that steep downward curve in their storyline, it's surprising, it's tragic, it's painful, it's disorienting, it's confusing. But do you know what happens, y'all, when you back up and look at the grand storyline of the Bible? You know what happens when you back up and see the whole storyline of redemptive history, of God at work in a broken world, invading it with his kingdom? What you see is you see these steep, sudden, downward trends all over the place. They litter the storyline all over the place. And we see that it's not uncommon, that it's not surprising. The first one we see is Genesis 3. We're not even three chapters into the story. When the story takes a sudden, drastic, tragic, downward turn in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve's rebellion, and ever since then, the storyline of God's kingdom advancing in this world, that story has these sharp, sudden, downward trends all over the place. Places in the storyline where God's plan looks and feels completely different than what we're expecting it to. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, David, Solomon, Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah. We could go on and on, Old Testament, New Testament. Places in the storyline where it looks and feels like God's plan A goes off the rails. Like evil is winning and God is losing and it doesn't make sense. And you know, the the one place in the storyline of redemption where we actually see the steepest downward curve like this in the storyline from what we're expecting to what actually happens is at the crucifixion. That was a nosedive in the storyline that Jesus' disciples did not see coming where it looked like God's plan A was completely falling apart. But here's the point. When we back up far enough and look at the big picture and you see these moments all throughout 
the history of God's redemptive purposes in this world. When we look at the big picture, it's not like it makes these moments any easier. It's not like it makes them any less painful or less confusing, but there is comfort in remembering that the gap between expectation and reality is not uncommon on this side of heaven. And that the pain and disappointment and confusion that often accompanies these sharp, drastic, downward turns in the storyline is not surprising. It's oddly encouraging when we experience trials and suffering and disappointment and hardship as believers to remember that we're experiencing a very common feature of life on this side of heaven in a world where things can fall apart. And to remember that Jesus told us it was going to be this way. Remember, this is how Peter encourages the saints that he's writing to in 1 Peter 4. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying this trial, whatever it is, it's, it's not strange. It is painful. It is disorienting. It is hard, but it's not surprising. And James writes something similar, you remember, when he says at the beginning of his letter, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, not if you meet various trials, but when you do. For you know that something's happening there, that the testing of your faith is producing steadfastness. And you remember it was some of the last words that were ringing in Jesus' disciples' ears on the night of, of the crucifixion when he was betrayed. He said to them, in this world, you will have tribulation. He doesn't say you might. He says you will, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So the first thing we see here about this gap between expectations and reality and the pain and hardship that often accompany that gap is that it's not surprising. Now here's the thing. It doesn't mean, though, that the trials won't surprise you. It's not like you can ever forecast them or see them coming from a distance. That would be convenient. Trials will surprise you, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. The Bible wants us to remember that we follow Jesus in a world where things fall apart and that our, our storyline will include those steep, tragic, unexpected, painful, downward trends, and that when we experience them, that we shouldn't be surprised. But that's not all. It leads into the second thing that we see here, and that's that these, this gap between expectation and reality and the pain and trials that accompany that gap. It's not pleasant. Not only is it not surprising, but it's not pleasant. When the wheels fall off, when life gets harder instead of easier, when life takes a sudden unexpected downward turn and what we thought was God's plan A comes off the rails it's not easy. It's not pleasant. Notice that the Bible here, as always, it's completely honest about the pain that God's people can experience while we follow him in this world. Exodus 5 doesn't cheapen or gloss over the fact that sometimes for God's people, life can get really bad really quickly and sometimes right at the moment when we thought it was going to get better. The Bible's never naive or flippant about the reality of suffering and disappointment. Pharaoh hears Moses' people 
um, wanting to go. He hears, he hears Moses demanding to let the people go, and, and Pharaoh immediately shoots back with, absolutely not. And obviously, you people are getting big ideas here because you're lazy, you're idle. And so you just need to get back to work. I can fix that really quickly. And so Moses hands down this new work order, bricks without straw, but the same amount of bricks as always. He's trying to break them. He's trying to get them back in the, back in the dirt, back in the mud, thinking about their, where they belong in the pecking order here. And he does a pretty good job. Because the Bible's pretty honest about the experience of God's people here, that it hurt. That's why Moses, when these four men come to him complaining and accusing him of making their lives more miserable, Moses doesn't say, y'all just cheer up. Just, it's not that bad. Stop complaining. Notice he turns right back around to God and he says, God, your people are experiencing evil. When the wheels fall off and life gets harder instead of easier, when life takes a sudden, unexpected, downward turn, when what we thought was God's plan A comes off the rails, it's not pleasant. Now listen, you might hear me, you might hear me saying that and you might think, well, duh, like that's easy. I know that. It's not rocket science. I want a refund for point two here. You might be thinking that, but listen, here's the point. Isn't it encouraging how honest the Bible is about how hard life can be? The Bible writers don't keep anything back. They're not God's press secretaries wearing rose-colored glasses trying to put the best spin on everything. The Bible is not propaganda that makes it look like following God in this world is always going to be happy and amazing and easy and awesome and everything's going to make sense. If I was writing it or if you or I were making it up, we would probably spin it that way. But no, it's much more honest than that. It's much more real and upfront and therefore trustworthy. You can trust a God who right up front and all along the way is utterly real and honest with you about what following him in this world can look like and feel like. You can trust a God who says to you, follow me, and if you do, your life might get worse. You might lose friends and family and comfort and position, and it might even cost you your life. You can trust a God who's honest with you like that. You can trust a wounded Savior who knows disappointment and grief and can look you back in the eyes and say, I'm not calling you anywhere that I haven't been already. And I'm not calling you into any suffering that's not really my suffering that you're sharing with me. You know, those things that Paul lists at the, end, at the end of Romans 8, that very famous passage, all these things are not pleasant realities. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And maybe you could add to Paul's list there those trials that you know and the disappointment that you're experiencing. And Paul would say, it's not pleasant and it also cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
who is making even that trial work for your salvation. So, the, so life in the gap that we know on this side of heaven, where things can fall apart, the gap between expectation and reality, and the, and the trial and hardship that we often experience in this gap, it's not surprising, it's not pleasant, but third, we see that it's not random. It's not random. That is, when God's people experience trial and suffering, when our stories include these steep, sudden, painful, downward turns where it looks like what we thought was God's plan A is coming off the rails and falling apart, God's Word gives us the perspective to view these moments as part of the bigger picture. And this big picture, it doesn't answer every single question that we might want in the moment with specific details that we might be asking for. But this bigger picture, it does place our trials within a larger framework, a larger context that allows us to see that what's happening to us and the ways that life is falling apart and the trials that we're experiencing, it's not random, it's not accidental, it's not isolated. And what is that big picture? What's the big perspective that the Bible invites us to look at with? It's it's the big conflict. It's a bigger conflict. Here in Exodus 5, the conflict that's playing out between God on one side and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt on the other side, that's the big conflict that is the context for the people suffering and for their trials. But listen, even behind this conflict is an even bigger one. The conflict between God and the kingdom of heaven on one side and the evil one who resists him and sabotages his kingdom every chance that he gets. That's the big conflict that is the big context for every trial that we experience. The conflict between a God who won't let his people go and the evil one who doesn't want to let us go either. It's the bigger conflict, right, that Adam and Eve weren't aware of in the garden. They just thought they were talking to a snake. It's the conflict that Job couldn't see. He just thought that his world was falling apart. Think about it like this. If you're an average Israelite back in Exodus 5 who grew up in Egypt knowing nothing but a life of slavery, one day, this is how you experienced it. Your life went from plain old miserable to unbearable. From making bricks with straw to making bricks with no straw. (laughs) And it might have just felt so out of nowhere, random, disconnected from any kind of larger narrative, senseless, pointless, and meaningless. And sometimes suffering can feel that way, can it? Sometimes when it comes out of nowhere, we can be tempted to think that it really did come out of nowhere. And that would be truly terrifying. But their lives in Exodus 5 and our lives right now are playing out in the midst of a bigger picture, a bigger conflict between the kingdom of God and the forces of evil that stands in his way. God's people then and God's people now live in the midst of a divine rescue operation in which the kingdom of God is invading enemy-occupied territory to bring about truth, goodness, and beauty, and rescue, and salvation We live in the midst of that conflict where God has arrived 
to push back the darkness, to rescue captives and set them free, to defeat the evil outside of us and inside of us, and to make all things new that have been enslaved and ruined by what's been called the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. God is on the move and is invading enemy territory to push back against his enemy and your enemy. That's the bigger picture, the bigger conflict in which all of our trials are situated, which means that they're never random. They're never disconnected from that larger narrative. And even if we don't know or never even find out on this side of heaven what God is up to in a specific painful situation, we can always know, we can always be certain that there is more going on here than meets the eye. That God's saving purposes are at work for our good. That God is coming after us. That the conflict in which our trials are located is between two kingdoms. Two kingdoms that both don't want to let you go. And only one of them can win. And one of them has already won. You see the birth and death, and life, and ascension, and the coming return of Jesus Christ means that even though this conflict still rages, and even though it can still hurt, he's already won. And the victory is already decided. It's not up in the air. And that he who is in you, and he who is for you, is greater than he who is in this world. So this gap between expectation and reality and the suffering and disappointment and pain that often accompanies that gap in this world, it's not surprising, it's not pleasant, it's not random, but what do we do about that? Well, in closing, I want you to see what Moses does about it. I want you to see Moses here at the end of this chapter standing in that gap for the people of Israel, and crying out to God, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to these people? You've not delivered them at all. Look at Moses crying out to God, why have you forsaken them? Y'all, that is not the whiny complaint or tantrum of someone who's not getting their way. That's the cry of a mediator. It's the cry of an intercessor, a go-between, who's standing firmly in that gap for the people, standing in the gap between what he knows that God has promised and the pain that's actually taking place. This is the cry of a mediator who knows that God cannot break his promises and that because of God's character, this gap is not sustainable. It can't last, but it's happening right now. And so he cries out, God, you told me that we could expect deliverance and rescue. But what we're experiencing seems to be the opposite of that. You promised that you were coming for us. Why does it feel like you've abandoned us? My God, my God, why have you forsaken them? That's what Moses does in the gap. He appeals to the promises and the character of God. 
And one day, brothers and sisters, one day that gap will close forever. One day you will not know the trial and the pain and the discouragement and the disappointment that takes place within that gap between what God has promised and the pain that we're actually experiencing. One day that gap will close. But it will close because another mediator stood in that gap and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus has stood in that gap. Because Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Because Jesus knows that pain. You can know that your own pain and that your own trials in that gap are producing life and salvation because it produced death for Jesus in that gap. And so you can follow Jesus with your eyes on him, not knowing all of the answers, but knowing the one who cannot break his promises to you. And knowing that even as you hold on to him, he's holding on to you even tighter. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see you even as we stand in the gaps that we know, the gaps between what you've promised and what we're looking forward to and what we know will one day happen and the pain that we may be experiencing now. Would you come and let your word be clarifying and a comfort to us as we stand in that gap knowing that you stand with us, knowing actually that you have stood in a gap that we will never stand in ourselves as our mediator and our intercessor. Oh God, give us the grace to keep following you even if it feels like you are calling us from a frying pan into a fire, knowing that that fire can only sanctify us because you are being good to us. Help us to keep our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.